0: Welcome to Philosophy as a Way of Life. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci from the City College of New York, and here is my co-host, Rob Coulter from University of Wyoming. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm good, Massimo. How are you today? Not bad. It's a beautiful day in New York City. Good, good. So before we get uh, with uh, uh, with the topic and uh, the guest for today, as usual, let me announce our next uh, episode, uh, Philosophy as a Way of Life, that will take place on Thursday, June 16th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and it will be just the two of us, Rob. Yep. Talking about stoicism for good times, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you know, typically people think of stoicism as you know the tough thing that, that, that you use the philosophy you use when you're having a hard time and when everything is going to hell. But what about the good times? What is yeah, that right. supposed to do? <laughs>
1: yeah, if stoicism is supposed to be, uh, you know, a philosophy for life in general, exactly how does it look in, in when times aren't so bad? Yeah,
0: Exactly. So if people are interested in uh, joining us live for uh, that episode, they can go to meetup.com and look for, and we changed the name of the place again, my apologies, but the link is the same uh, as before, the Global Agora. So meetup.com and search for the Global Agora. If you wish to hear past episodes of Philosophy as a Way of Life, go to anchor.fm forward slash philosophy as a way of life or check us out on Spotify. So today's topic uh, is uh, Growing Moral, a Confucian Guide to Life, which is a book uh, written by our uh, guest, Steve Engel. Uh, Steve received his BA from Yale University in East Asian Studies and his PhD in philosophy from the University of Michigan. Since 94, he has taught at Wesleyan University where he is now director of the Fry's Center for Global Studies. Mansfield Freeman Professor of East Asian Studies and Professor of Philosophy. The author of several previous books on Confucianism, Steve has co-edited, co-directed, sorry, two NEH summer institutes and is a recipient of two Fulbright grants, a Berggren Fellowship, a Millicent McIntosh Fellowship and a Chan-Ching Hua Postdoctoral Research Fellowship. And in 2006, he was awarded Wesleyan's Binswanger Prize for Excellence in Teaching, Steve, that's a lot of stuff, welcome.
2: Thank you very much, it's great to be here.
0: Okay, Um, I'm gonna gonna ask the first question, I guess, uh, and then we'll go from there. As you know, there has been a resurgence of interest in ancient philosophy and ancient wisdom from the Greeks and Romans, of course, to India, China, Japan, right? So we have uh, lots of books coming out on Buddhism, Stoicism, occasionally Epicureanism, that sort of stuff. Now, why do you think that is? Why do we still go back to Socrates, Confucius, and all the others more than two millennia after they actually lived?
2: Well, so it's a great question, a great place to start, and I think that uh, in this you know conversation with you guys, I'm I'm of course interested in what you all think as well uh, in in you know put this in a comparative context. Uh, but I guess what I would say is uh, that one reason is the Broadly speaking, uh, the shared interest in virtue in the uh, in the ancient traditions, all all the ones that you've mentioned, uh, and I think that there's been a uh, increasing recognition uh, among scholars, for starters, uh, over the last several decades, that thinking about morality in terms of rules, decision procedures is insufficient, um, uh, and it turns out that we have lots of great uh, earlier traditions, uh, s- suggesting that we should think about our moral lives uh, more broadly than that. Um, uh, and so, you know, that's certainly not the only source within the academy, it's probably the, 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 the number one source. Um, but uh, I think it's also connected to the, you know, the broader interest in these things, because it turns out that, that it illuminates uh, some important dimensions of our everyday lives.
0: Yeah, my my typical uh, take, um, because people ask me the same question whenever I talk about stoicism and stuff like that, and uh, uh, my typical response, and and in fact, often, at least in the context of Western philosophy, when people ask that question, it's like, oh, you know, we we don't look at Aristotle's physics, for instance, or biology, uh, if you want to be, if you're uh, interested in modern science. And I said, that's right, that's because science has changed dramatically over the last two millennia, and so it would be, you know, it is certainly historically interesting to look at Aristotle, um, but no, you're not going to learn any biology or any physics that is worth learning these days from from him. On the other hand, human nature hasn't changed in 2,000 years. You know, we we have, uh, you know, Zoom conferences and cell phones, and we we gone to the moon, but uh, we still want the same things. We still fear the same things. We still have the same anxieties. We still, you know, and that's, that's why uh, the ancients are still relevant. They're not. They're not the only source, certainly, of, of wisdom uh, from that perspective. But you know, they they were human beings just like us, and they thought pretty hard about this kind of stuff. You know. They did,
2: and uh, I think there are ways in which the more modern approaches to to uh, moral thinking um, uh, sort of got so specialized um, yeah. uh, and technical that. Right. It turns out that very rarely in one's life do you run into trolleys that may go one way or another (laughs) and kill various numbers of people. But every single day we're interacting with families, uh, family members, uh, neighbors, um, uh, the environment and and so on, all of which the ancient traditions can shed a lot of light on how we should how we should approach.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you just mentioned the trolley dilemma, so I have to say a tiny little bit about not the trolley dilemma. Forget about that. But you know, most of our listeners know what what you're talking about anyway. But uh, you might have seen the now very famous scene about trolley dilemmas in the, the the Good Place, the comedy that was based on, you know, on on sort of phlo- they had a philosopher as a as a one of the major characters, and there is this uh, conversation where the philosopher is explaining about the trolley dilemmas and the guy that has the superpowers basically says, "Yeah, this is a little too theoretical." And he snaps his fingers, and all of a sudden they find themselves on an actual trolley, and there is actual people, and he has a lever, and he doesn't know what to do. And before he makes a decision, the the blood splatters all over the place. That's why my favorite presentation at the trolley. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> makes
1: it makes it real. It's true.
0: <laughs> exactly, Rob. Sorry, I was interrupting. Yeah, you. go
1: ahead. I know. I was just going to add something. I think Steve, you were at least hinting at is the idea that. You know, human experience, well, it's changed like our interface with the world via technology has changed tons, right? But but we're still interacting with people, right? Even even through technology. And I think that's that's really important. Um, and I think another thing that it's interesting to think about when we think about why some of these ideas from antiquity are still relevant it's it's probably the case that not all of the ideas from antiquity are particularly relevant we've lost a lot right and you know there were probably lots of uh, faddish ways of thinking about one's place in the world and what one ought to do that just didn't survive right and so it's kind of interesting that some of the things that have survived survived be, because they in the way they did probably because they resonated right in at least in a lot i think so I don't know, any thoughts about that, Steve? Or? Well, I, th- I think
2: that's right. Um, the other thing you can say for Confucianism in particular, and not, you know, stories are different with different traditions, sure. but Confucianism has been a more or less continuously practiced and uh, cultivating internal critique and developing tradition over 2,500 years. So that doesn't mean that it's got everything right. The There are... You know, parts of my book talk about the the importance in a in a contemporary context of continuing that process of internal criticism of Confucians trying to further better what a, what it is a Confucian should think, but nonetheless there's there is uh, uh, a lot of wisdom there um, yeah. uh, that has passed through many many tr- centuries of of uh, examination. So mm-hmm. I think the resonance is right, um, uh, and the fact that it it uh, c- continues to be it's a little harder nowadays um uh but continues to be a live tradition is relevant also i think
1: yeah i definitely want to get back to that point um in a bit but i'd, I'd like to ask you one more thing while we have you you know since we met as, both as participants in the uh philosophy is a way of life network paste at notre dame and um and obviously uh growing moral is part of the guides to the good life series that oxford is doing and and you're on you're now on the philosophy as a way of life podcast um (laughs) um, one of the things i'd like to i'd like to get your opinion on is like what is a philosophy of way of as a way of life or a philosophy of life or a good guide to a good life or those sorts of things you know sometimes we distinguish this from academic philosophy or a variety of other things and and i'd love to get your take on what makes something Like, say, Confucianism or Stoicism, be a philosophy as a way of life, as opposed to something else. Or what's the relevant contrast here? Obviously, I'm asking a huge question, but I wonder if there's some like key points you'd want our listeners to hear.
2: Yeah, no, great, thank you. Um, And I guess there's at least two ways that one could approach answering that question. One is about, say, Confucianism uh, or Stoicism uh, as historical tradition uh, as, as it was practiced and developed. And one is uh, the way that we're thinking about philosophy as a, as a way of life, as a, as a category in academia, um, mm-hmm. vis-a-vis other ways of thinking about philosophy and other categories like say religion um, uh, in the contemporary moment, right? Um, so let me try to just say something very briefly about each of those. I remember the first time that I read Guérard book, Philosophy as a Way of Life. Mm-hmm. And the, I guess maybe the second chapter or something like that is the, is the, the, uh, the big lecture that he gave when he took his chair uh, and discussing you know, what, how he understood the Hellenistic schools uh, mm-hmm. to have existed and, and, and been practiced and so on. And I remember thinking, this is Confucianism, particularly Neo-Confucianism. Mm-hmm. Right. We know less about the practice of uh, classical Confucianism. Scholars have you know, debated this, uh, but we don't even really know for sure who wrote what parts of the Analects that are attributed to Confucius. Right. So there's, all, there's a lot of questions about the, the very early period. Um, I'd say that what I'm saying basically applies to that too, but we know a lot more about the 1,000 year later um, Neo-Confucian tradition. Uh, which is one of the things that I particularly focus on in my own research uh, in the sort of historical mode. And it looks a lot like what Ado is describing there. And in what in what respect? Well, there's this combination of theory and practice, right? Um, uh, there's a very explicit attention to doing things, um, uh, having things uh, infused in our lives that are going to change the kinds of people that we are for the better. Um, uh, and uh, so that, Sort of rigorous, um, uh, systematic reflection on the nature of reality, et cetera, et cetera, combined with a, a sort of explicit set of practices, um, uh, I think is is at least a key part of what it is, what makes that philosophy as a way of life as opposed to something else. And so, if you trans now translate that into the into uh, the contemporary moment, what is it to think about philosophy as a way of life today? Um, well, the key thing is, it's got to involve um, some uh, uh, practices, right? It's got to involve things that we do and that can include reading, writing, conversation, debate, uh, the sorts of things that, that uh, are, you know, the features of the average uh, philosophy classroom these days, mm. but it's not gonna only include those things. And it also has to pay at least some attention to this idea that we're not just trying to gain knowledge, we're trying to shape ourselves. Um, We're trying to have some kind of effects on ourselves. And I think that the, you know, one of the things that really has um, excited me about the philosophy as a way of life movement is because we don't want to do this in a way that is just sort of indoctrinating people, Mm -hmm. therefore, it's very useful to offer a plurality of options, right? Um, uh, And and that pluralism, plus the point that Massimo began with uh, about the sort of commonalities that we see in, in ancient philosophies across different cultures, um, right? Uh, that has led to philosophy as a way of life being particularly open to non-Western forms of philosophy. Um, uh, so yep, there's all, you know, lots of uh, uh, Greek and Hellenistic and Roman stuff for sure, which is, which is great, but also Buddhist, Confucian, Taoist, um, uh, and other traditions that clearly are fitting in uh, with with this way of, of uh, doing philosophy as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. And I mean, I've really been trying to incorporate some non-Western traditions into classes I teach on this stuff and, and it's been um, exciting and really illuminating for me too, to think about this sort of stuff. But I think Moswell has the next question.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about religion a little bit. In, in your book, at some point you say that the term religion should be understood broadly. Uh, I may agree there, but but I want to hear in what sense, what, what do you mean by by broadly and, and why, why? Why should that uh, be the case? What, what's useful about it?
2: So the frame, the context for this is one of the sort of standard questions uh, that one gets if you work on Confucianism is, is Confucianism a, a religion? And there are, you know, the right answer to that question is, well, it depends what you mean by religion, because If what you mean is something that uh, has belief in a transcendent deity at its heart, um, uh, then arguably, not everybody's going to agree with this, but most people are going to to say, no, Confucianism is not a religion in that sense. But if you have a broader understanding of what a religion is, um, uh, where it's centrally about ritual practice. Um, certainly it's something about a you know, relationship with some kind of source of ultimate meaning and value, um, uh, but it's not necessarily about belief in a deity, uh, then I think it's a lot easier to say that, well, Confucianism is a religion. Um, lots of things are religion. Um, that, you know, for folks in religious studies departments, you know, the example that get, usually gets trotted out in the Northeast of the United States is that the Red Sox um, might well be a religion. Um, uh, and some
0: people do worship the Red Sox.
2: So. Absolutely, absolutely, right. Um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but I think part of when you get that broad. So I think that's so that's my answer: is Confucianism religion? Yes, as long as we have uh, an, an inclusive kind of standard religious studies uh, today understanding of religion, then it is. Uh, but it's also not clear to me that that's the most useful category to mm-hmm. think about Confucianism in, in as it relates to, you know, sort of people broadly, because we tend to think about religion in terms of belonging. Um, yes. uh, and, you know, my book is not about trying to convince you to, to sort of uh, belong to Confucianism, to identify in a certain way, mm-hmm. as much as it is encouraging us to think about the content, think about what it is to shape your life uh, in, in these various ways and the effects that that's going to have.
0: Yeah, so I wonder what what do you think about, in a sense, kind of the opposite approach, which is what I'd usually use when I'm asked whether Stoicism is a religion, Uh, right? In the case of Stoicism, for instance, it's even more tricky because uh, the Stoics were pantheists. There definitely is a belief in God there. Uh, and it definitely does play a, uh, you know, although it's a god understood as you know coincident with nature and all that, but it's a god also that is endowed with the logos, with reason or you know, sentience, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, and there is no worship of that god, but there is a providential aspect to Stoicism. So, so it plays it, you know, that metaphysics plays a, uh, an important part also in the ethics. You know, when when Epictetus says. Hey, you know, if your wife or child should die tonight, don't you know? Don't be, don't be bothered by it. He's not, a, he's not talking like a psychopath. He's saying it's a providential thing, so it's gotta be for the best of the cosmos, right? It might not be for your best, but it is for the best of the cosmos. Okay, great. So my answer typically there is kind of the opposite of the one that you just highlighted, and that is well. Um, No, stoicism is a philosophy, but by the way, every religion, a philosophy of life, but every religion is a philosophy of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, I make philosophy the more comprehensive category of Mm -hmm. which religions tend to be just a particular manifestation, which usually involves some kind of worshiping that typically is absent from the philosophy. Because if you think about it, so what are the typical characteristics of both a religion and a philosophy of life. I mean, there is a metaphysics, right? They understood broadly as uh, a story of how the world hangs together, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're, I grew up Catholic, if you're a Catholic, there is a creator God that is uh, all powerful, blah, blah, blah. And if, as I said, if you're a stoic, it's, no, you, you, you have a different kind of, uh, of metaphysics, but you do have one. Uh, then there is an ethics, meaning a story about how you should behave in the world. And the two are typically related to some at some level right so the christians will tell you oh yeah well since there is this all-powerful all god you better do what what he says or else uh and the stoics say well yeah there is a providential universe so of course you're doing certain things in a certain way and then there is a set of practices right for stoicism it could be different kinds of meditation uh, you know different kinds of as Ado put it spiritual exercises for a christian might be going to church reading scriptures uh that that sort of stuff but other than that i don't see a hell of a lot of a difference there so does that make any sense to you
2: well i think as far as you've gone it does uh uh you're right that that in in those three respects they they have a lot in common um and i guess what i would uh wonder in, in response is how much how much is at stake in the the uh what we usually attribute to philosophy and, and the role of uh, a philosophy of, of uh, reasoning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of trying to uh, reflect critically um, uh, and explain and justify our reasons for yeah. adopting a given worldview, um, and that's something which is, you know, very much in the for, foreground for a lot of uh, Greek, in particular, approaches to philosophy. It's not quite as much uh, thematized, not in the same way uh, exactly, in say Confucian uh, philosophy. But I think Mm -hmm. it's still very present. Um, uh, And so, the you know what's interesting about this notion of philosophy as a way of life or a philosophy of life uh, is that it isn't just the reasoning, right? So, which you know, in a certain sense, was Ado's great uh, contribution um, uh, that even the you know, platonic dialectic is part of something. Uh, it fits into a, uh, this, this broader category of trying to think about how to live. Um, uh, whereas in you know, the sort of the modern ivory tower professionalized version of philosophy, we end up thinking about uh, all philosophy is, is just sort of thinking and, and, and uh, you know, giving reasons for things. It, there, there's no, nothing else. There's no body, you know, there's no interactions with others. There's no life um uh and so right so as a
0: po- points out uh i forgot now in which point it might have been in philosophy as a way of life that would make sense uh that's actually a fairly th- what you just described as you know modern academic philosophy it's actually a fairly recent development it's it's only very recent and it's only mostly the the west you know the academic environment for most cultures and most times philosophy was in fact both an inquiry into you know the 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 uh, understanding the world and a way of living. Uh, there, there was really no, uh, it's not like we're inventing indeed this new, new thing. What, the new, what is new is, is philosophy understood at this very abstract uh, kind of uh, approach. Uh, Rob has the next question before we get there. Let me remind the audience that is present live uh, on this conversation that uh, this this might be the time to start putting your questions, if you have any, in the chat. And Rob and I will take a look and, uh, and go from there. Uh, Rob, you next.
1: Yeah. Um sorry my dogs making a little noise i don't know if you can hear.
0: Um
1: so i wanted to bring this down more to um the confucianism stuff instead of these bigger questions. Um for a lot of westerners like me confucianism seems sort of like um impossibly exotic and eastern and different, right? Um and you know For me, I you know we hear about Confucius in a variety of sort of ways, or and maybe like like I did in college, some class, some survey class has a copy of the Analects in it, and you read some of it. And I did a lot of head scratching and things like that, right? But um, I wonder if you have sort of like an elevator speech that you would tell us, like what for someone approaching Confucianism for the first time what are like the key things you would want to make sure they know or understand?
2: Okay. Uh, sure. And I, I think that the, the goal of that elevator speech um, uh, is, is really going to be to respond to the the sort of concern that you have.
1: This, yeah, this, yeah. This
2: kind of question, right? Um, because what I try to do in the book for sure is to persuade people that uh this is for you. Um, uh, this is not just for 2,000-year-gone you know, d- um, you know, uh, you know, Chinese guys. Um, uh, it, it, it really is about everybody who has um, you know, parents, um, uh, you know, everybody who might deal with uh, uh, somebody's, somebody's death, everybody who uh, has to you know, deal with other people on a day-to-day basis in society. Um, uh, And so on and so forth. Right. Um, So what's distinctive about it. um, The, I think that emphasis on our fundamental relationality. um, uh, So that who I am is in a deep way constituted by my relationship with my children, with my spouse, my parents. um, uh, And, uh, and those, you know, my, my students and uh, my teachers and so on and so forth. right? so that's uh, that's a central piece uh, that we uh, so that's the you know the kind of the the subject um, uh, this relationally relationally constituted subject, as we would say as philosophers. Um, what are we trying to do? Um, uh, we're, I mean we're trying to become better. Um, uh, and Confucianism is a set of values, a set of practices, a set of rituals. Um, uh, that are designed to help us get better, be better tomorrow than we are today. Um, uh, There's the ideal of becoming a sage. And what's important about that is that sages are not gods. They're not angels. They're not fundamentally different from humans. They are humans. Um, uh, And they represent this idea of perfection, which on the Confucian understanding is possible. We're not actually going to reach it but um, the idea that you can be better and uh, you have it within you and you have it in, in, in your, in, within your sort of relations to be better. Um, uh, that's what it's all about, right? So, and better is understood in part through this idea of virtue um, uh, and the, the means to betterment partly through um, uh, undertaking rituals and other kinds of practices, right? In the book, I talk about reading, I talk about music, I talk about uh, attention, reflection, so on and so forth. And on each one of these things, they've got, uh, they have uh, uh, specific sorts of recommendations that I think are eminently accessible to people today. Ding, we just got to the top in the elevator door. Yeah,
0: we
1: did, there we go
0: very ah, good <laughs> nicely done so so you're talking about you just mentioned the sages and that that's something that's a uh, concept that you find in other traditions again for instance in stoicism now i've always been puzzled by this notion of the, the the sage and and i keep changing my mind about whether it's useful or in fact damaging i mean seneca famously says that uh the Stoic sage, at least, is as rare as the phoenix, right? the, the mythological bird that rises from its ashes. And according to Roman mythology, that means there is one every 500 years or thereabouts. So not a lot of sages around, right? right. Now, um, so you put it in terms of an ideal toward which one strives, and that's that's a very nice way, I think, to understand the concept of a sage. But at the same time, one might wonder whether whether the issue with the sage is also that it is so unreachable, it is so rare, it's so out there, uh, that in a sense, it might actually have the opposite effect and kind of discourage people I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna be as, I mean, I'm reminded, in fact, of what um, the ancient Romans who lived during the late years of the Republic were saying of Cato the Younger, who Seneca thought was a sage. And uh, Cato had this reputation for being so, you know, honest and so incorruptible that in Rome, when, when people were failing doing something, they said, "Well, not everybody can be a Cato." right. <laughs> like yeah. sort of so I wonder to what extent the, the sage might actually do um, some damage to a, to a philosophy in, in, in that sense. Like people are just going to say, "You know what? I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get there, so I'm gonna give up."
2: Yeah, no, that's 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 a great question, and I think it's I think it's really important. Um, and if we only had sages. If we had sort of, right, us and sages, and that was the what the whole story was, uh, then I think we'd be actually be in be in trouble, um, uh, because sages do seem uh, on the you know on the Confucian account are extremely rare. Um, pretty much, they're only in the past, right? Um, uh, no one uh, who has any claim on actually being a sage ever says I'm a sage, um, uh, and uh, the you know, uh, uh, one of the great modern Confucians explicitly says it's an infinite task, um, Im- implying that, that no one ever actually gets there. But the, uh, so the key thing I think for the, for the Confucian account is to convince us that there's a sort of a continuity and a set of stages um, uh, between us and the sage. And that the progress that one makes, the moral progress that one makes along that path is fundamentally uh, continuous. Um, uh, so it's not at any point that there's some some rupture to uh, being a different kind of person or a different kind of being. I think this contrasts with at least some understanding of, understandings of let's say sainthood, um, uh, where uh, whether it's a religious saint or a moral saint, often you know there's really something strange about them you, um, uh, that <laughs> yes. you're not sure you'd want to be like that. You're not sure that you ever could be like that. Whereas um, uh, the Confucians are always going to insist on this kind of continuity, and in fact talk a fair amount about people who are really pretty good, but not sages. Um, uh, right? One of the most common um, uh, exemplars who's referred to in the tradition, uh, Yan Hui, Confucius's favorite student, um, uh, and he was really good, uh, but at least partly because he died young tragically and, and uh, Confucius uh, mourns him bitterly and so on and so forth. Um, uh, But he never he didn't become a sage. There are some of the great Neo Confucian teachers as well, uh, who are looked on as that kind of an exemplar, they're real people, and they're real good, but they're not perfect. Uh, So if what right what you want is simultaneously something that is keeping you from resting on your laurels. and. Uh, you know uh, pushing you know pushing you to uh, to keep going without the result that you said Massimo of giving up because it's too hard
0: so that's one one objection toward the to the sage I, I think I, I agree with you that that that's a good way to respond to it but another one since you just mentioned the word saint uh, you know comes out of a, uh, an approach that often is uh, referred to uh, Susan Wolves' Famous uh, paper, the moral saints, where she argues that the it's not just that the problem isn't that most of us are never going to be saints. It's just that it's a bad idea to be a saint, to aspire to be a saint, right? Um, that is, if it the, the notion being that if the moral dimension of life takes over in that kind of overarching way in which sainthood, uh, usually we, we think of sainthood, that's actually bad because it makes you an incomplete human being, a, a, a you know, sort of a, a human being that is missing certain other dimensions of what a human life is. So do you think that there is some some something to that kind of objection? And w- how think, would yeah, a Confucianist, Confucian respond?
2: Right, no, I do think that there's something uh, important to that objection. Uh, but the, the, so the problem with that kind of person is exactly as you said, that there's one dimension that has taken over Uh, that that uh, that person's whole personality um uh so we call it moral right but when we call it moral we're using moral in a particular sense right um uh so it's about um uh this kind of commitment to the good of others let's say um uh and i think that the that so there's a distinction in you know in wolf's account um uh between the moral goods which are again about giving to others, sacrifice for for others, and so on and so forth, and non-moral goods, um, uh, which are a lot of the richness of life. Um, uh, And so, sure, it makes sense to think that uh, it's nice to have around people who are sacrificing themselves for others, um, uh, but we might might not want to be those type of people. So, I don't think Confucians make a distinction between moral and non-moral goods. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think it's an inclusive sense of value. And what the Confucians are are calling for is harmonizing all of these different dimensions of value, right? So if you're somebody who uh, is you know enormously giving to others, but at the cost of um, uh, your family, let's say, right? You're never around. You end up being really a pretty bad parent um, uh, because uh, you're just always off doing doing good. Um, uh, then that's going to be a strike against you in terms of uh, your you know, how you would be assessed as in, in terms of uh, uh, you know Confucian progress on the road to sagehood.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly the kind of objection that Susan Wolf actually brings up. Yeah, sure. uh, Rob, you you want to pick up something from the chat?
1: Yeah, I would uh, um, like to get some audience questions in here, and uh, I think I'll pick on Marisa's question. Uh, Kind of goes again general, more general, uh than specific here, but she asks, and, and we'll see if see if um I get this right. Um with respect to this, you mentioned a combination of theory and practice being important with the philosophy as a way of life. And and she wonders if you think there's some sort of like ordering between them, right? Is theory have to come before practice or does practice inform theory in important ways, or is that is there a general answer to this, or is it one that maybe is a case by case sort of basis, or any combination thereof? Yeah, well, I think that if we
2: think about how Confucianism emerged, um, uh, so it emerges as uh, with the increasing theoretical reflection on an existing body of practice. So I would say for sure, historically speaking, the practice comes first um, uh, with respect to Confucianism. And the, the, the point at which we start to think of it as a philosophy, as a way of life, as a philosophical tradition, I think, is only when that reflection um, uh, is added in uh, and you get the ability of, uh, to be self-critical. So the practices aren't just done because they're done, it's not a sort of traditionalism. Um, traditions are valued, but we can say why traditions are valued. And you know, as Alist- Alistair McIntyre is pro- probably the greatest theorist of, of, of this, this aspect of traditions, there's this, you know, there's this internal um, uh, sense of rationality, of, of, uh, of debate in traditions where they learn and grow. Um, so you know, I think that you've so you got to have both of these things. Um, uh, for for it to be any kind of robust sort of philosophy as a way of life, I'd say. That
0: Great, sounds good. Arsenal, uh, next. I, yeah, I have. A, I'm going to pick another question from the audience. Uh, that's this is from Howard, uh, who says, "You know, why are Confucianism and Stoicism, rather than say skepticism and medieval philosophy, becoming popular now?" Well, first of all, I'm working on the skepticism part, but but uh, <laughs> setting that aside. That's a good point, right? So we have, you know, dozens of Hellenistic philosophies. We have lots of uh, traditions from, from the East. We also have lots of traditions from Af- other places in the world, Africa, Mesoamerica, etc., etc. Now, in some cases, the answer is simply, "Wow, well, we don't know enough about those traditions. Uh, or in other cases, is like we don't know enough, meaning not just in general, but we in the West don't know enough to pay much attention. But it is certainly a good question. You know, why certain tradition, not, not others? Is it because somehow they're better, and by better I mean more useful in modern context, in 21st century context? Uh, is it an accident of history? Does it depend on the amount of material we have about this stuff or, or what?
2: Well, so at some level, the answer has to be all of the above. Um, uh, and I would add in, you know, factors about, um, you know, power and privilege and, and uh, geopolitics and so on and so forth that play roles. Um, uh, uh, the so it's partly that we don't know so much about some things, but it's also partly that the there are resources. Um, uh, that are available for those studying some things and not so much for those studying other things, et cetera. So there's a lot of different sorts of reasons. Um, I do think though that we can make a case that Confucianism and Stoicism um, uh, are, if not uniquely good, if not uniquely well-suited to sort of uh, the the modern predicament, um, at least clearly do speak to a lot of people um, uh, I think the case for Stoicism there is very strong, but the case for Confucianism is more complicated uh, because Confucianism is not widely known in Anglophone countries outside of perhaps you know a few uh, cryptic quotations from the Analects of the type that Rob was referring to, right? Um, uh, and in uh, East Asia, where Confucianism is widely known, mostly it's widely criticized and not embraced. Um, uh, for, you know, the last 100 uh, and more years, the the general, you know, the general elite view of Confucianism has been very critical um, uh, as, you know, uh, sort of pursuing Western modernity in one sense or other, um, uh, either a Marxist vision of that or a more liberal vision of that. Um, uh, those have been the, the things that really have been at the forefront of uh, intellectual and political agendas. So Confucianism for the majority um, uh, has been, you know, the sort of old fashioned thing that, uh, if anything, is a problem. Um, And then on top of that, so my version of Confucianism is progressive Confucianism. Um, uh, It's a version of Confucianism uh, that is self-consciously working uh, to um, be responsive to the challenges of modernity. Um, uh, And but that's not the only brand of Confucianism out there, uh, and a lot of the I think the loudest voices, uh, loudest Confucian voices in East Asia, tend to be much more conservative. Mm-hmm. So if you have somebody saying, "Yes, we should all be Confucians, and women should go back to the home and not be out in the workplace, and that will make them happy," right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is a uh, you know is a, a a terrible interpretation of Confucianism, even though it jibes. Well, with traditional Chinese and East Asian practices, um, uh, but if that's what Conf- if that is what Confucianism is, well, then so much the worse for Confucianism. And you know, I don't know, even medieval philosophy would be better than
1: that.
0: Right. It's it's um, again there is a, a parallel there with with Stoicism. There is there is a uh, there are some people who are pushing what is called traditional Stoicism, and some people were pushing uh, a more progressive, you know, modern version of Stoicism, and yeah, you, you can go to some of the ancient Stoics, uh, for instance Musonius Rufus, and uh, you you know you on the one hand you will find remarkably uh, you know modern passages about how to, you know the treatment of women. And then, however, you also find passages that say sex only within marriage and only for procreation, which, you (laughs) know, and so if you want to take that, literally, it's like, hey, but Muzonia says so. Uh, And if you don't update that, then you're stuck with that sort of thing. So, Uh, Rob, you are, you have a question back to our conversation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, Steve, um, you, you said something that I think might be connected to this question too. So I wanted to ask you about ritual. Um, so the idea of ritual, you know, when I've tried to teach Confucianism is a big one that my students are always pushing back on. So there might be a little sort of self-interest in my asking this question. (laughs) Um, but, um, I, I think it's easier to think of ritual, this idea of ritual that comes out in a lot of these ancient Confucian texts as being really central to our relations with others. And, um, it can look like, at least it does to my students and even to me sometimes, um, like it's some sort of reverence for idiosyncratic traditions simply for their own sake, right? And this is, and and the question is, this is what's supposed to ground how we relate to others in the world? That just seems weird and crazy and traditionalist and oppressive. So there's the challenge, right? Uh, can you explain ritual in a way that maybe takes that challenge away or changes it in some way?
2: Sure, absolutely. No, I think it's really important to address this. And I, if I remember correctly, I think ritual is actually the first substantive chapter in the book. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, the, the right, it's, it's very important. I guess the, the first thing I'd say is ritual doesn't ground anything. Okay. Uh, uh, I think that, and that's, I think that is a, uh, a mainstream view within Confucianism. There are some outliers who would dis- disagree with me and say that, no, no, actually it is ritual all the way down. Um, uh, But I think that they then really face some of the problems that you're alluding to. Um, But if ritual is not the ground, um, uh, but rather a really essential means to moral growth, moral in a broad, inclusive sense, um, uh, and to flourishing human interaction, um, uh, you know, that's the claim, right, That, that we have to have rituals. Um, uh, if we're going to get along well together and if we're going to grow as individual um, uh, moral beings. Um, uh, and then we can look at our rituals because we're suffused by rituals. Um, we can look at them and we can either embrace them or we can critique them. We can discover rituals that are, in fact, undermining our ability to, uh, you know, individu- individually and collectively grow as moral beings. Um, well, we should change those. Um, uh, but then also recognize uh, that you know there are a lot of rituals that that aren't problems that are um, uh, supporting our our, our flourishing. Um, and so I think it's it's as much that we don't recognize the rituals uh, uh, you know that, that that structure our 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 realities in, uh, all the time, and we don't think about the positive functions that they're that they're serving. Right. So we just and we think of odd examples um, uh, or examples that maybe, you know, like uh, kosher laws come up all the time, right? A lot mm-hmm. of things related to religious practices come up as if, if you ask students about, uh, you know, what, you know, what are the rituals that they encounter? Um, mm-hmm. It might be some something that, you know, they encounter at their grandparents house or, or you know, so, something like that, right. where they don't really, you know, they'll say, well, hey kosher once made sense, uh, you know, from a sort of public health standpoint or something right mm-hmm. um but that's not that's not what rituals are about um they may also have effects like that but that's not what justifies rituals
1: i don't know whether that helps you know, i wondered i mean so just the notion of ritual to me uh and and i think to my students anyway um out here in wyoming um yeah. right they think of this sort of mystical guys in robes right Sort of stuff, are there some more um, down to earth sort of examples that that you've found useful in talking about this idea?
2: Well, as I say, I think once you start to really probe it, we 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 recognize um, uh, how ubiquitous they are. So you know, uh, the academic classroom or for that matter, even the you know, the zoom room um, is structured by rituals. Um, uh, and the ways in which we express respect for one another, the ways in which we defer to one another, uh, right, which helps us to actually learn. Um, uh, and, you know, that learning, right, uh, that learning sort of with a capital L is another way of talking about growing in the, in the, in the Confucian sense. Um, uh, so, right, there's rituals right there. There are rituals, um, you know, around uh, waiting in line at a coffee shop, right? You can think of people who Maybe follow the letter of the law. They're not pushing somebody out of the way uh, to get closer to the front of, of, of a line, but they're still actually acting with quite a bit of impropriety, right? So imagine you're behind somebody uh, in line uh, who's elderly, a little confused, maybe decides to pay for their coffee with a checkbook and, you know, and so on. And it's, it's taken a long time. So how do you, how do you react, right? Are you sort of <sighs> Looking at your watch, you know, uh, frustrated, um, uh, maybe make some rude remark to a you know uh, somebody standing next to you in line. Well, that would, that would be a uh, you know not a not a great uh, example of ritual propriety. Um, uh, and you know whether the other person notes notices or not, it's going to have effects effects on you, effects on um, you know the uh, maybe not that person but others. So right, that's there's nothing.
1: Mystical Roby about that. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Machimo, do you want to do the next one?
0: Yeah, well, in fact, we, we're kind of getting near the end of the hour, so I'm going to wrap two or three questions in, in, in the same big question because they're kind of related to each other. Uh, you know, at some point in your book, you, you talk, and in fact, you mentioned that just a few minutes ago. That you're working towards something that you call, uh, you know, sort of progressive Confucianism. Um, that's fine. You know, as, as I said, you know, Stoics worked toward, you know, modern Stoicism. Uh, I I've uh, co-edited a book uh, a year ago on uh, how to live a good life with different authors, and one of the authors contributed a chapter on progressive Islam. So there is this notion, this this tendency, like, okay, well, these are ancient traditions, but we want to update them. Uh, that's great, uh, but then the, the, the obvious objection there, which I myself get sometimes, is like, um, for instance, you, you, you criticize on that basis traditionalist uh, Confucianism for fetishizing the past, right? And, but somebody could easily say, well, of course you do, because you wanna actually do move, move things forward in, a, in your own direction into, and, and come up with a different thing. So I think we, we would all agree that there is a danger in fetishizing the past, there is also, however, a danger of essentially inventing something completely new that is almost disconnected if, if in, in anything but name from the tradition that it allegedly wants to connect to. And so, and I understand, of course, that that's, uh, you know, it's a line, line, line in, the, in, the, in the sand, and it's, it's, not, it's certainly not a sharp uh, division anywhere. Uh, but what is your general thinking about where that line how do you actually go as a process in doing that for instance uh, and this is the third question wrapped into one uh, at some point you say that um, some traditions have priests and confucians have have she what exactly is she is it somebody who actually decides how far you go and how far you can go or something like that and how does that work
2: so yeah this is a super important issue um uh and I guess what I what I think is that what counts, what ultimately counts as Confucianism, uh, and what is just beyond the pale, what is what is what is left the tradition entirely, is ongoing, up for grabs among the community of people that somehow take that question seriously, um, uh, and the you know as it were the community of Confucians. Um, uh, they get to decide. Now they don't get to decide at any one point. It's not like okay, we're going to go have a vote tomorrow, and then we've decided. Um, uh, but that is ultimately the, the the sort of the vague and ongoing changing um, uh, community or body that gets to make these these choices. Um,
0: strikes me as a very Wittgensteinian answer. You, you,
2: well, look, you know, if okay. if you were to ask if you were to ask Confucius. Whether the stuff that Zhu Xi in the 12th century was doing was the same, you know, and you weren't a, you didn't like update him in any way, you just somehow, you, you know, use some kind of time traveling telescope and, you know, you look at that stuff. Is that, is that, you know, what you teach? Almost certainly Confucius would say no. Because, um, uh, right. you know, there's 1,500 years have gone by, enormous, enormous social, economic, um, uh, political sorts of transformation. Um, and intellectual and religious and, and et cetera, et cetera, every, every sort of change um, to the, the Confucians of Xi's day, then the answer is absolutely yes, this is continuous. And how do they know? Well, in part because they are looking at their times through uh, the, the medium of deep immersion in the textual tradition. So they are are uh, they're going back to these texts. They're, they're they're steeping themselves in these texts in part because they think there's great insight there. But not just insight like uh, uh, in the written word. These were written by people who they take to have been sages, um, or at least far along the path, right? And so uh, the I mean the whole Confucian understanding of how reading works I think is really fascinating. Um, but your sort of immersion in the text enables you to uh, be inspired. Um, uh, not just to learn stuff, but to be inspired. And so this, through this process, they're then looking at things in their, pre- in their day, right? The present day of the 12th century. Right. Um, uh, and saying things that are somewhat different from what Confucius would have said in his times. So the shi, right? S-H-I, right? The shi are the people who do that, people who immerse themselves in the textual uh, tradition, because yeah. um, that's what we've got. We can't immerse ourselves in the practical tradition. We've got to figure out the practices um, uh, uh, as we go because of you know temporal distance and so on. Um, uh, so we immerse ourselves in this tradition uh, and see what we come up with and debate because that's what the Confucians have always done, uh, right? I think that the... Um, the notion of progressive Confucianism is what Confucianism always has been. It's just that we've progressed. Um, uh, there's new stuff to take seriously. Things that, you know, the 12th century uh, folks should have been able to, it would have been great if they had realized this mm. because Jushi's writings, I think, are completely inconsistent with his views of gender, right? His, his values, his deep values are inconsistent with his, his views of gender. But it—he doesn't see it. Almost no Neo Confucians see it. Certainly, no early Confucians see this. Um, uh, and so, but we can see it now. We see it now partly because just society has changed so much um, uh, that go back and let's reimmerse ourselves in the uh, in the in the texts, in the values of this tradition, and we see, oh yeah, right, everybody can become a sage. Not yeah, men right. can become a sage, but everybody can become a sage, right. and so that has profound consequences
0: again that strikes me with uh, as having a lot of similarities with similar discussions in uh, analogous discussions in stoicism uh, i saw an article or an article uh, a paper actually a technical paper two or three years ago that was asking the question of you know are the stoics feminists okay. and right and so and the answer was well no if you're talking uh, about seneca or epictetus or you know marcus aurelius although as i said they did have interesting you know, somewhat modern things to say about women, but no, they definitely were not feminists. But the authors of that article said, pointed out that the real question is is feminism logically implied or at least compatible with the, the general notions uh, that are accepted by Stoics? And the answer there is yes, because Stoics are cosmopolitan, they think that anybody who has reason uh, ought to be treated in the same way and has the same you know rights, etc., etc., which implies. Uh, feminism understood as you know the radical notion that women are human beings. So uh, yeah, and it's it's a, those are two different questions. You know, one question is, are these particular authors historically uh, more or less compatible more with, with what we think today is is a good way of looking at things and that depends right yeah. and the answer probably is going to be sometimes no sometimes in part very rarely yes, completely. Right. Uh, but the broader, more interesting answer, uh, your question is, yes, but what about the philosophy in general? Do the precepts of, you know, the general axioms of that philosophy, are they compatible, uh, or do they even imply, in fact, entail, logically entail, certain things or, or others? And that that's an interesting discussion. Uh, we're at the top of the hour. I think Rob is going to get the last question for today. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and, and your point about Confucius and and
1: looking at, at later thinkers makes me wonder, sometimes I wonder the same thing about whether Zeno or Chrysippus would have recognized what Marcus Aurelius was doing as continuous was what with what they were talking about. And, and well, I mean, I just kind of wonder about it. I think it's a really interesting question, but I wanted to um, finish up with kind of, um, well, Will asked earlier if you think there's an aspect of modern life uh, or some sort of problem that we tend to face that Confucian, Confucianism is particularly apt to address, and, in, and maybe in a more general way, do you think there's some part of our modern social interactive life that Confucianism is, is particularly well placed to address? Um, and, and what would be your, the sort of takeaway you would want us to have about how Confucianism might fit in modern life? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, it's a super important question. Uh, and I think that, I think there are a lot of, a lot of ways. Um, uh, and, you know, in a certain sense, the book tries to spell out what, what many of those are. Um, I begin the book with uh, uh, my father's passing away and, and funeral, in part because rituals and death are very important uh, to Confucians and to humans right turns out. Uh, I think that the, the Confucian approach uh, to thinking about death is, I'm not going to say unique, um, uh, but it's distinctive, and it's, I think, extremely uh, valuable right. Um, the Confucians are not worried. Individual Confucians are not worried about their death, um, uh, in a way that is central to many Western philosophical uh, traditions and, and religious traditions. Um, what they care about is uh, the sort of people who are left behind, um, uh, right? So there's a lot of talk about death, um, uh, but afterlife's yeah, who knows? Um, just not not an interesting thing to talk about. Maybe um, you know different people had different different views, but that's not what the philosophy is about. What the philosophy is about is um, uh, is about why um, in even in situations where someone has lived a wonderful long life. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I talk in the book about a, a friend of mine who lost her ninety her father at age ninety four um, to COVID, uh, and uh, he had. I just couldn't imagine a, a, a better life than this guy lived. Um, uh, rich and, and flourishing in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, and yet it was just a wrenching loss for her. Um, partly because she feels like it, oh, it's so close to being being prevented. It was, you know, a week away from getting vaccinated um, uh, when he died. Um, uh, but it really isn't about that. It's just, it's about the uh, the uh, the deep connection that we have with one another. Right, uh, and so when you lose a parent in that way, it you lose part of yourself, um, uh, and so you have to have a way of dealing with that. We have to, so we have to understand why it's natural and appropriate to feel that kind of wrenching grief, um, uh, but then we've got to uh, process it, right? Uh, and so, thinking about mourning, thinking about why grief is beneficial, but why, you know, if it lasts too long or uh, so on and so forth, it can be it can be problematic, um, uh, and so you know, there are all sorts of aspects of the Confucian uh, vision that fit together there um, uh, and help us, I think, to deal really humanely with problems uh, that, you know, or, or with issues that, that that we all face.
0: Great, thanks. All right, thanks, and we've done it again. We've had fun and learned something for a whole hour, uh, and it just has passed very quickly, so Steve, thanks again very much for uh, coming on the show. This this was a lot of fun, and was a lot of fun reading your book, *The Growing Moral*. Uh, Growing Moral: A Confucian Guide to Life.
2: Thanks so much. This was great. I've uh, I don't think I've ever done a official podcast before. So yeah, um, you are. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, thanks yeah, a lot, fun. Steve, and great to see you again. Yeah, absolutely
2: great to great to see you all out there. A um, few who few uh, friendly, familiar faces, and uh, um, yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you. And before we wrap it up, uh, let me remind uh, people that the next episode of Philosophy as a Way of Life will feature a conversation between Rob and myself on Stoicism for Good Times. Uh, (laughs) Join us for that on Thursday, June 16th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, To register for that live event, go to meetup.com and look for the Global Agora. If you wish to hear past episodes of Philosophy as a Way of Life, go to anchor.fm forward slash philosophy as a way of life, or check us out on Spotify. And other than that, uh, everybody stay safe. See you next time, Rob. Yep. See you, Marcelo. Thanks everybody for joining us.